0: Welcome to the Aristocrat Pub in Indianapolis, where a live audience has gathered for episode eight of Lou Harry Gets Real, a podcast about arts, culture, puns, play, and stumbling forward through life. On Lou's guest list this evening, Greg Ballard, a former mayor of Indianapolis and author of the book Less Oil or More Caskets, and singer songwriter Cam Melton. I'm Beth Outland, your co host for the evening. And now I'd like you to please welcome a guy who got rejection letters on the same day from The New Yorker and Jack and Jill magazines, your host, (laughs) Lou Harry. Thank you.
1: Good evening. The Carter administration was very good to my brother George and I. I would learn later that it wasn't too good for a large number of other people, but I knew that people were lining up at the pumps for high-priced gas, but as someone in a lower-middle-class family on a five-mile-long island in New Jersey, with only rare reason to cross the bridge onto the mainland, our family's gas purchasing was at a minimum. I knew that those gas lines had something to do with what was happening in the Middle East. But as far as I know, well, I'd never met anyone from the Middle East. I knew two or three kids that were Jewish, but they never talked about it. If they had bar or bat mitzvahs, I wasn't invited. I knew there were hostages taken and the days were going to be going by without rescue but those were abstract those were numbers on the tv that I sometimes saw between school scarfing down dinners and high school play practice the days went by but I didn't quite know what that meant now the Carter administration was my friend because my brother and I had summer jobs I started as a paper boy, then worked on the boardwalk, I fixed skee-ball machines, spun prize wheels, bus tables, flipped burgers, sold fake dog shit and exploding lighters and Jim Morrison posters. With nothing I could think of to do with money besides buy books and eat pizza, I, like my breakfast chef slash fruit truck driving brother, squirreled away money into certificates of deposit. Before there were CDs for music to buy, there were CDs that paid you. At that time, thank you, President Carter, they were paying as much as 17%. 17% at no risk. You just had to let the money sit there for six months, which was not a problem. Thanks to Carter and Company, plus some generous community scholarships and a job in the dorms, I was able to pay my way to Temple University, which is where I actually started paying a little bit of attention to politics. When I wasn't paying attention to movies, women, theater, writing, and women, That's when my friends my friends at the time included lesbian lefty Deb D'Alessandro, who went on to host a feminist radio show in Philadelphia, and John Kincaid, a hardcore Reagan fan who is now co-host of the big podcast with Shaquille O'Neal. They were both my friends, and they were friends with each other. And I don't recall either of them screaming at each other about their opinions. The times have certainly changed. With their help, I realized that politics hit different people different ways. My win, like my win on those CDs, can be somebody else's loss. I also learned that world history and our personal history impacts how we see the world, the lessons we take from it, and the changes we try to impose on it. While I never had an interest in running for public office, for a long list of reasons, since my college life I've remained fascinated by the give and take of the political world, both globally and locally. We're going to talk about the global and the local in a bit with my guest, Greg Ballard, who knows a lot about both. I'm thrilled that he's going to be here to join us. But first, I want you to meet Beth Outland. Um, Beth. And I go way back. Uh, she was involved in the initial work that led to the creation of the Indie Fringe mm-hmm. Festival here in Indianapolis. We've worked together on projects with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, where she serves as vice president of community engagement and strategic innovation. If they can get all that on a business card, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, like all the co-hosts here at Lou Harry Gets Real, she's an improvisational performer working here in Indy with Comedy Sports. Please welcome Beth Outland. Oh yeah. <laughs> While we're on a little bit of uh, of kind of a political bent, when do you when did you first sort of become aware of of politics in your life?
0: Oh, that's an interesting question for me because um it was during Watergate because um, I remember the summer where Watergate was on all four TV mm-hmm. channels, and that's all there was, right? right, right. Um, and we were visiting my grandparents in New Jersey, and my parents left us there, and they sort of went on vacation, but it, Did you ever hear from
1: them again? Yep. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <They> <laughs> a tragic came, story. They came back for
0: me, but, okay. um, <clears throat> but um, it was on the TV all the time, and so mm-hmm. I remember asking my grandfather, like, what is all this about? You know, I'm little. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it was also, it was something that was watched carefully in our house, because my father's uncle, was one of the key Watergate lawyers, uh, James Neal. And he was deeply involved. And while I didn't have any clue what these grown-ups were arguing about, it just seemed to me, it was one of my first impressions, was something really awful had happened, Mm. that it was uh, taking the the obsessive attention of all these adults. And uh, so my first introduction was that it felt kind of scary to me, Mm. like that these people have so much power that everybody Mm. is fighting about it, and it's preempting you know, all my favorite TV.
1: (laughs) Now you, working with a symphony, Uh which you could could make the case perhaps as a microcosm of a society. You have all these people trying to figure out how to work together. What Mm -hmm. are the politics like of a symphony orchestra?
0: I'm not sure I'm close enough to retirement to answer that honestly. But, um, but honestly, it's really interesting. I mean, it's you know, it's an ecosystem like any other business. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's fascinating about it is that you have both executive leadership who is focusing very heavily on. You know, the balanced budget and the operational aspects, and making sure that we are sustainable financially and all that kind of stuff. And then you have an artistic leader who is very focused on the vision of the art we want to create, um, the sound we want the orchestra to have, and how we want to um, uniquely put our artistic, you know, vision mm. into the world. And watching those things go together, mm. there is there is the kind of inherent tension that you might expect it is
1: by inherent tension do you mean fisticuffs or um
0: I've never um I've never seen actual bruises on anyone <laughs> but but yeah, like you know an artistic leader who has this great vision for doing um well, we did dream of Gerontius a couple of weeks ago of
1: right? course sing along everyone sing along, dream of Durantius.
0: <laughs> Um, and that is, um, that is a piece that's like an hour and 20 minutes long with no intermission. Right. So first of all, God forbid you have to pee because you're not getting out. Um, and if you get out, you can't come back. Like It is a big, heady, meaty piece, and it is super important to the artistic director, not just because he believes it's a great work that everyone ought to hear, which it is, but also because doing that is going to develop the skills of the musicians we are fortunate enough to have from all over the world mm-hmm. and allow us to grow right so there are very good reasons for doing it we also know that we're not going to have a line around the block of people go and dream of durantius right. yeah it's you know.
1: not you love you know the live broad live symphony accompaniment to harry potter You'll also love this.
0: Exactly. But you know what? The artists are going to play the stuff to Harry Potter better because Mm. they've done Dream of Durantius. And so we're always trying to strike that balance, which I think is also inherently what happens in our political system. Mm. Like, how do you strive the balance that makes us all better doing things we know in the short term sometimes are Mm. not necessarily going to make everybody happy um, and Mm. make it sustainable along the way? So there are a lot of political parallels.
1: Interesting. Well, one of the things we like to do with every episode is uh, what we call our pun challenge. We put out there on Facebook uh, something to do with our guests. So in this case, what we did was we asked (laughs) asked our readers uh, via social media uh, to lessen or improve the electability of a political figure by adding, subtracting, or changing part of that person's name. For example... Bill Halley-Selassie in the Comets, Benetton Mussolini, Benjamin Netanyahu-nanny-nanny-boo-boo. Things that mess with the names. Some of the ones that came in. Uh, Oh, uh, former president, James K. Polka. Wouldn't you be more likely to vote for him? Uh, You wanna throw in some of these? Abraham LinkedIn. (laughs) Abraham LinkedIn would be good. He could have
0: a heck of a network. Social
1: media, that would be good. Chairman, wow, he would be cool. (laughs)
0: JFK Mart. JFK Mart. would that downgrade. Makes me sad. That would be very yeah. sad.
1: Uh, Mitch Jack Daniels. We could drink along with. Drink along with Mitch would be the slogan in on that one.
0: Uh, Ross Pierogi makes me laugh a little. I kind of like that for the. Yeah.
1: The Polish community would embrace that. Uh, Millard Fillmore East for those who <laughs> like rock and roll. Now dead silence on that one. That's all right.
0: Kind of a childhood throwback, throwback of uh, Spirograph Agnew. <laughs>
1: Spirograph Agnew would be good. FDR Tolkien. that'd be great. Kind of a Hobbit uh, vice presidential. No, forget it. Uh,
0: Hoochie coochie men.
1: Right. <laughs> who would be Who would be great working with Dwight D. Cup Eisenhower? <laughs> that would be fun. Oh, and Rutherford Beyonce Hayes. So mm-hmm. all good. <laughs> We, should we end? We actually got a laugh on that one. Should we end on that one? No, let's do a few more. Go ahead.
0: Okay. Algorithm is one of my favorites.
1: <laughs> I like Sherbert Hoover.
0: <laughs> uh, Chris, Christy Cream?
1: Ooh. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think they're going to go for Lady Turd Johnson. That's not good. <laughs> but she's number two in the polls. So there we go. Oh. 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 bad.
0: Uh, Martin Minnie realize. Van Buren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's home for me.
1: Bernie Col- Colonel Sanders, maybe. Mm-hmm. Vladimir putting on the rips. That would be good. I'd like That's that. A winner. Let's, end, let's end on that one. Thank <laughs> you to all those who contributed. Some of those people won free tickets tonight. Watch for those on social media. I want to bring up our interview guest for this evening, Greg Ballard. When Greg Ballard announced his run for the mayor of Indianapolis, I did a double take. Is this the same guy I met when I was invited to this writer's workshop to speak? The inquisitive, generous, and powerfully upbeat guy with a military background? I didn't even know that guy was a politician, but it was him. I had spoken to his writer's group not too, uh, lo- not too far before uh, the time that he announced. Um, he certainly was different, and in an upset over a much heavier-funded incumbent, With greater name recognition, he landed a pundit puzzling win, going on to two terms running the city of Indianapolis. Uh, Greg Ballard was not a standard-issue party-picked candidate. With a degree in economics, he joined the U.S. Marine Corps, earned a master's uh, from Marine Corps University, served in the First Gulf War, and with the European Command in Stuttgart, Germany. His experience overseas led to further study uh, of the Middle East and our dependence on foreign oil, leading to his book less oil, or more caskets. We've got a lot to talk about. Please welcome Greg Ballard. Welcome, Greg. Well, thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. I appreciate it. I am very interested in day afters sometimes. I want to know what it was like the day after um, you're at your duty in the Marine Corps and the day after... You finished up as mayor of Indianapolis.
2: Oh, that's uh, really interesting. I think the day after I finished up with the Marine Corps, uh, all I remember was flying back from Germany with the family, and I don't remember too much after that. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I'm not sure that was exciting. Uh, I can tell you exactly what I was doing uh, when I got done being the mayor. You're done on January 1st, mm-hmm. for May 2016. At 9 a.m., I was in a car heading toward California.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I know that's exactly why I drove uh, right to Santa Barbara mm-hmm. uh, just to get away and clear my head. It eventually took about four months to clear my head, mm-hmm. and just the just the way I was in being the mayor. I think people, most people, know that. But I, uh, I got out there to Santa Barbara on January third. On January fourth, I actually started writing this book. Oh, really? Yeah, that's uh, because I didn't have time as the mayor or the mm-hmm. energy as a mayor to write a book. I, I knew I had to get away to do that, and so I started. Mm-hmm. Actually, in the hotel room in Santa Barbara on January fourth, two of thousand sixteen. So. Now, it's
1: part of that sort of respecting the the incumbent, the next regime, so that you know attention doesn't always turn back to, to you to follow up on things, to comment on that you know the next mayor's activities, any of that. It's good to be. At a distance. I think it's good to
2: be away. I I, I think I, I've held to that. Uh, I'm certainly, we've talked a a few times, but I, uh, as you've noticed, there hasn't been any proclamation by me on anything, Mm -hmm. and I don't anticipate that uh, to happen whatsoever. So
1: So where are you anchored now?
2: I'm at the University of Minneapolis. I'm a visiting fellow, and I do a lot of work with them. I don't have my own classes because I... uh, I help professors with their classes. They they would have let me teach, but I had other things I kind of wanted to do, and mm-hmm. I helped like not them. teach. Like, not, well, I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I do fundraising for them. We have a Ballard Summit every year. They bring in high school sophomores and talk about. Em- the theme is always embracing the future, and I I'm actually positive with them because I don't know if you've talked to high school students here lately, but they don't think the future is going to be there, and right. it is going to be there for them in really good fashion because mm-hmm. the world is getting so much better as we speak. So uh, so I do that sort of thing. I'm also I co-founded the Indie Women in Tech which was the main sponsor of the robotics and our, our state robotics championship is now mm-hmm. huge, right. as, you, as you may know. We sponsor STEM days for middle school girls. We also put women through coding academies and through Ivy Tech cyber, uh, cybersecurity courses and website mm-hmm. courses, website management courses and that sort of thing. So we pay for them to actually uh, get into tech. As I like to say, we actually put women in tech. Mm-hmm. We're not just an advocacy group. We actually <laughs> pay for them to get in tech. So and then I do, I'm on some boards and commissions. And, That's right. Write books and things uh-huh. like that.
1: Well, I'm curious because we're going to talk about sort of dependence on, on oil and uh, what that means for us here. What was the first car you? Let's start with the first car you were driving, and I want to get a, a sense of where your understanding and um, interest in what's happening with oil, how that evolved.
2: You mean so the first car I ever what was drove? the first car you were ever driving. 66 white Volkswagen Bug. <laughs> Completely used. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, that was the first car I ever had. Uh-huh.
1: And when did you start to become aware that our, uh, the way we handle oil is creating a national problem?
2: Well, most people think I had an aha moment back in the Gulf War, back in 1991, but I did not mm-hmm. because the technology, there was no alternative. We knew we were fighting for oil. Uh, we had to at that point in time for the global economy. I, I think everybody understood that.
1: Do, wait, I want to pause on that. Do you think that that was, was that the message that was being sent, or? You, you, know? you, you read the book. Yes, we did. The answer to that is no.
2: Right. Uh, we, uh, if you go back and look at the rhetoric by our federal office holders at that time frame, we were talking about expelling dictators and countering aggression. No one mentioned that we were fighting for oil. But we, The Gulf War in 1991 was about nothing but oil and who was going to control the oil economy for the future. I mean, that's all that was. Uh, and it's hardly any secret, but no one would talk about it mm-hmm. like that.
1: Right. Although you mentioned in the book that, I and mean, you quote every president on almost every sort of inaugural speech or, or yeah, around that yeah. time saying, this is, you know, I'm going to be the energy president and we're going to change dependency on foreign oil. Yeah. Going back how far? Uh,
2: back to the oil embargoes and Richard Nixon. I mean, Richard Nixon said at that time that we will, under Project Independence, we will be completely energy independent by 1980.
1: Isn't it great that that happened, and <laughs> <laughs> So he
2: said that, and, and every president since, I did not, because I didn't want the book to be political, I did not put Presidents Obama or Trump in the book, mm-hmm. but every president, both parties, said something like that while they were president. Mm-hmm. and But there was no action. In fact, we went from back from the oil embargoes, we were 28% dependent on foreign oil during the oil embargoes, and despite the, uh, despite those oil embargoes, the Gulf War, the terrorist incidents, the hijackings, uh, 9/11, uh, all of those things that happened between uh, 73 and 2006, we went from 28 percent dependence on foreign oil to 60 percent. Despite all of those incidents, and yeah, I would suggest that most uh, most people think we were getting off of foreign oil. It was just the opposite. We were getting more dependent on foreign oil during that entire time.
1: Now, is that higher percentage in addition to a higher amount of oil? Yes. So, yes, we so were it's
2: increasing not- our amount of oil and we were increasing our dependence on foreign oil. Right. Uh, President Reagan did change where we got our oil from. He mm-hmm. tended to go away from the Middle East. We're not completely off Middle Eastern oil. We buy some from Saudi and uh, also from Venezuela, if you, for those who don't know that. But the. Uh, so we went to more friendly sources, but there were still foreign sources of oil. So this, that's why I say in my book, "Energy, our, our energy independence is irrelevant. It doesn't solve what we need to solve. And I, we can talk about that here in a second. But.
1: Well, you're talking about dependence on oil. The other big piece, I think, in your book that's eye-opening but should be self-evident is that it's not just us buying oil from another country, it's us protecting that oil for the rest of the world.
2: Historians are not going to judge us kindly. This is, you, this is the, the main part that I talk about when I, when I do my PowerPoint and I talk to audiences. We protect the oil for the entire world. The oil supply routes, the infrastructure, to make sure oil gets where it needs to go.
1: And by we, you mean?
2: The United States military and their contractors and everybody else. That cost us $81 billion in 2017. It's cost us tens of billions of dollars for decades now. This is above and beyond the wars. This is not our troops in Syria and Afghanistan. This is a separate mission of protecting us. And we have been doing this since the early 1970s, since the Brits pulled out and said, we're not doing it anymore. And then during the Vietnam War, we actually got this mission, and we've been doing it. Now, here's what really happens. We protect that oil. We protect the oil that goes from Iran to China. That goes from Iran to Asia, so South Korea and Japan and every place else. We protect that oil, and that money that Asia sends back to the Middle East, to our, including Iran, is then used to fund terrorists who want to kill us. We this this is actually what is happening. We protect the oil that is then sold that goes that eventually winds up in terrorist hands who want to kill us, and we've been doing this for decades. There was no alternative before. I suggest to you now there is. Otherwise, I would not have written the book. But that, how perverse is that? That is really perverse. And we've been doing that for a long time now. And people don't know it. They literally don't know that. Uh, all the four-star generals who have been involved in this, I mean, you, they, they all quote this in some way or another. You know, one, of, just, uh, one came out just three or four months ago. A former commandant of the Marine Corps says, why do we protect the oil that goes from Iran to China? But we do. And Iran has been a a state sponsor of terrorism since 1984, according to our own State Department. And I think everybody knows that Iran funds terrorists at a very heavy rate. Where do they get their money? The sale of oil, which we protect.
1: And these were countries that, I mean, let's flash back a while, because I think a lot of people don't realize how the politics of just the borders of those countries evolved and were shifted (laughs) because, you know, a hundred years ago, these were not powerful countries. They were barely countries. I mean, although they, I'm not uh, trivializing the rich cultural history of that area and the people of that area, but this was not; these were not global powerhouses. No, they were
2: not global powerhouses and they were, not, uh, they were largely rural economies with some exceptions. If you ever read the book Silk Roads, which is a great book if anybody's read the book Silk Roads, and you see the culture that grew up in the East and the Far East, uh, the Middle East and the Far East, and that's really true. About 100 years ago, you're right, there wasn't much going on there until the discovery of oil. Um, and the borders, this is actually the next, the next book I want okay. to write, called what I'm going to call Losing the Peace. You know, the, the borders after World War One. we are still fighting wars based on those lines drawn in the sand by the French and the British, sykes Pico. sykes Pico Treaty, right? We are still fighting wars because of that over 100 years ago.
1: And just to clarify, but because, and I, I may be wrong, but because those borders weren't drawn necessarily in regard to like where the political centers that or the already cultural existed, centers, were right. created.
2: That's right. They weren't drawn Imposed with, we, with what people considered the boundaries at the time, even though they're real, real hardcore boundaries, but people did not, uh, those lines did not respect the cultural norms of that area. Mm-hmm. They were just lines in the sand, primarily because oil was just beginning to become prominent, uh, at that time, and so the French and the British wanted to make sure they had access to whatever oil that they want. They wanted, plus they had some particular um, ethnic groups that they wanted to be close to French mm-hmm. Syria and the French at that time. They wanted to be close, and, and uh, just things like that. And but generally speaking, the lines that were drawn that we now consider their borders did not respect the cultural norms. Mm-hmm.
3: Now so you, okay. i sorry, Please. so.
0: What percentage of, you would say, um, American military spending and American military efforts are related to the, this oil issue? 15%. 15% so,
2: of the DOD budget is this. Wow.
0: It's just this. Yes.
2: And so,
1: that's separate from wars. Yes,
2: yes. That is not the wars. Now, if you want to count the wars, because I would suggest hmm. to you right. that the only reason we're in the Middle East is, is to stabilize the Middle East to make sure oil gets out of there. I know people say we're fighting terrorism. Uh, yes, we are. But the reason we're fighting terrorism is to make sure the Middle East is stable so oil gets out of there. Mm-hmm. That's $5 trillion and and 6,000 lives in the last 40 years.
0: So how, don't, how come this doesn't get talked about more mm-hmm. as an economic issue?
2: That's a really great point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, would suggest there not, I would suggest there's not a solution other than there is one on the horizon now because 70% of the world's oil is used for? Transportation. Transportation. 70% of the world's oil is used for transportation. So
1: monorails are the answer? Monorails and trolleys, <laughs> I right. think,
2: are really the, the future. Mm.
1: Uh,
2: but no, it, it's cars and trucks. Right. I mean, it is planes and planes and ships also, but primarily it's cars and trucks. Mm-hmm. And as the middle class has grown in China and India and other places in Asia, because two-thirds of the oil that comes out of the Middle East goes to Asia. It does not come to the West. It comes to Asia. Uh, and so that's... And then the sale of that that money goes back in the Middle East, which funds the terrorism. But Asia has grown so much that uh, that's where all that mo- mm-hmm. that's the generation of the money, if you will, that goes back into the Middle East. The ba- vast majority of it. I don't really write about it in the book so much, but there's a similar situation going on with Russia and Europe. Thirty percent of the energy from uh, in Europe comes from Russia. You know a lot. You know, there's an old saying that Russia is essentially an oil company with an army. Mm-hmm. And there's there's, a, there's some truth to that.
1: Now, you said that um, when at the time you served, there wasn't an alternative to protecting the oil. That oil was needed. Tell us a little bit about what changed and how that changed.
2: Yeah, the, uh, there, there wasn't at the time. But it's, it's interesting because the second chapter of my book, just for all those who can't, uh, who think, okay, what, where did you go all this stuff? I have two war college papers. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, the the officers that go through war college are really the best and the brightest in the military and that, those are the those are the men and women that eventually become generals uh, and they, they, they say essentially what I'm saying and they said it back in 2002 2003 so that that's that's when people started to realize wait a minute this is. <laughs> there's another way of looking at this. However, we didn't have the technology at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have the technology now, and uh, I don't. I'm ambivalent as to how we move our cars and trucks. I don't care if it's fuel cell. I don't care if it's EVs. I don't care what it is. But EVs are staring us in the face. Mm-hmm. I mean, the technology is present right now.
0: When and you say it, EV, if you could just clarify that for electric our audience.
2: vehicles. So, uh,
0: I, not, I thought it was I, any I better. Know, I know so a lot sure. of this
2: audience may drive Priuses, and I love you for doing that. But it doesn't change the game. Mm -hmm. Electric miles change the game. If you drive 80 to 9% of your miles or 100% of your miles, if you have a pure EV, that changes the game. And if we can do that and provide the infrastructure to do that, I think within 10 years we can start to make a difference. And I think in 20 years we can actually change this completely.
1: Now, you said earlier you didn't want to get political, and I don't necessarily want to get political. But if a somebody to the left you know a, a democratic candidate were saying what you're saying very many people would write it off as tree hugging environmentalist rhetoric is it i mean do you find that you get listened to or more likely to be listened to because you've been a republican politician uh, there are and and a, and a military yeah man. there's a
4: First
2: of all, the environmental piece of this, I'm okay with. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty true, pretty true, right? Okay. Uh, to switch switching over. So I, I'm frankly okay with that. But I, the book is kind of written so that if you don't want to use that argument, <laughs> then you better be looking at this argument. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, but when I present on this, ninety five at least ninety five percent at least have never heard what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. They've never heard it. They don't know it, even though it's been happening for decades. But our four-stars know it, because mm-hmm. I, I can give you quotes from them. Right. Uh, is, this is not, it's not a secret within the upper levels of Washington. Mm-hmm. I, I, but all that, when I say the upper levels, I would tell you, I've talked to our, some of our congressmen about this, their eyes glaze over. Mm-hmm. Here, here's what they say. This is a, when I start saying about this, about how we've got to get off of oil because our troops have been protecting our oil, you know what they say? Oh, we're producing all that oil in Texas, it won't matter. That's what they say. Mm-hmm. Producing all that oil in Texas does nothing. It does nothing. Because it doesn't stop the leverage that OPEC and Russia have over the rest of the world. It doesn't stop the funding of terrorism because two-thirds of the oil from the Middle East goes to Asia. And it doesn't bring our troops home from the Middle East because, going to, because we're going to make— we. Are going to make sure everybody gets the oil because that's part of our international security responsibilities. So producing more oil in Texas does nothing, and we don't have the oil reserves. Everybody thinks we have a lot of oil. No, we don't. We have two to three percent of the oil reserves in the world. That's it. Eighty percent of the world's oil reserves are in the hands of monarchs, national leaders, whose interests are not aligned with ours. At least eighty percent of the world's oil reserves are in those hands. We don't, we don't have any oil in this in this country like everybody thinks it is. We're producing a lot. We're producing what we have now, and everybody thinks everything's great. That's a fool's errand. We cannot win the long game on this at all.
1: How much of the fear of politicians to get involved in it has to do with fear of losing money that's donated to them from oil companies?
2: Uh, that's all. I would suggest a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, appendix A in the book is a list of... Uh, I don't use any names, but... Over 90% of Republicans and over 90% of Democrats take money from the oil and gas industry. Uh, and you read the book. I don't go after the oil and gas industry. I don't. I don't they're, to me, there are legal companies selling a legal product. My point is we have to get off of oil. as We have to make it less than a critical strategic commodity for the world. And now we can. We can't do it tomorrow, but we can do it, like I say, in 10 to 20 years. We actually can do this. We just have to have the political will to do this. This is not about oil and gas companies. Oil industry will go down, no question about that, but that's okay. Uh, industries change all the time. I don't. When Henry Ford and his peers were making cars, I'm not sure they were too worried about the horse buggy manufacturers that they were putting out of business, <laughs> right? That's what mature economies do. A microprocessor changed a lot of jobs, gained a lot of jobs, lost a lot of jobs with a microprocessor, right? That's just what mature economies do, and it's okay.
0: So if the technology is caught up that there are now alternative energies and this is possible and there is the economic incentive to stop this cycle, what are the biggest barriers? Like, what are the challenges? Why can't we move on this?
2: First of all, nobody knows this, generally speaking. And I, as, I, as I joke routinely about this, there's only two things that really stops progress, regulators and legislators. <laughs> so they, they just don't know. I, I, so I, I'm taking it upon my personal mission. To inform people about this, I was just at, uh, a couple of days ago. I was up in Washington D.C. again with Safe Securing America's Future Energy, which has 14 four stars, retired four stars on their board, and they know this completely. So we're just trying to get the word out because it, because there hasn't been a really an alternative kind of around the corner like there is now. There isn't hasn't been a momentum toward it, and everybody's going at it from the environmental approach, and I understand that also, but I I'm taking it from the approach of our future military. Do we really want our future military to continue to be in the Middle East and, and those other places like the Straits of Malacca to protect the oil supply routes for the world for the next 40, 50, 60 years? Do we really want that when there's an alternative kind of staring us in the face? Did you read the little last half chapter, uh, chapter eight, mm-hmm. when I talk about kids, uh, look at, go, look, go to a Little League game mm-hmm. or go to a robotics tournament and go to swim meet and look at those 10 and 12 year old kids. Mm-hmm. If we don't change what we're doing, those kids mm-hmm. are going to be in the Middle East in another 10 years. Mm-hmm. And if you think that's too somber a statement, I could have made that statement in the 70s mm-hmm. and all the way through. Yeah. What, and, it was, and it's still true today unless we get ready to change all this.
1: What are you seeing on the, compu- on the, uh, com- the consumer front um, going to auto shows, seeing what the – are the auto manufacturers starting that's to a great wake point. up to this?
2: The technology. Yes, I think all the auto manufacturers are going there because uh, – China, India, Germany, France, Norway, Britain, and all these folks are talking about banning the sale of internal combustion engine cars. So the manufacturers kind of have to do this. Mm-hmm. Now, those countries are doing it for environmental reasons. I'm okay with that. Uh, but they're talking about banning the sale of gasoline engines in their countries. So the manufacturers have to do this. As, as, I, have been, as I have certainly found out in the last couple, three months, because I'm really trying to buy a pure EV, I, I've had plug in hybrids for years. Uh, but I want to get one, and I finally did order one a couple of days ago. Yes, yesterday, yesterday, okay. yesterday, Sunday, right? Yesterday, I, I ordered a Tesla Model Three yesterday. So, but the reason I did that is all these manufacturers who have these thing have these automobiles coming out, they're not there yet, mm-hmm. not to the level that they should be. They're starting to come out, but the Jaguar I Pace is out, and now the Audi e-tron is out in the last couple of weeks. But you know the. Like the, the other manufacturers who, at the lower priced end, where most people buy their cars, that is not out yet. Even though the, the technology is there, they haven't got, it, got there yet in, in uh, making it affordable for everybody. So uh, that has to, and I think in two to three years, that will change. Okay. And that's where my rhetoric will probably get a lot tougher Mm-hmm. in two to three years than I'm saying it today, which I, I think I'm pretty blunt today. <laughs> but, but in two to three years, I think I'm going to get very blunt about this. Once the the automobiles and the trucks have a certain point that people can afford them, uh, because the, the cost, I mean, it's, it's so cheap to keep an EV. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Mm-hmm. But it's so cheap to run an EV compared to a gasoline engine. Do you know that? Because Check the tires, check the brakes, make sure there's windshield washer fluid in it. That's about all you ever do on, a, on, a, on an electric car. But, uh, but in two to three years, when all this is at the same cost point or actually cheaper than an internal combustion engine car, uh, I would suggest to not only me but other people, rhetoric is going to get very loud. If you want our troops home, if you don't, if you don't want these caskets coming home from the Middle East anymore, you better be buying one of these cars.
0: When you think about this as a city level what does a city have to do i mean i have a colleague that just bought an electric car for the environmental reasons that you speak of but she had to get the electric car from another state brought in and she could not um she like called around and had to find a place that would service her electric car because you can't just take it to any mechanic right and so there's some infrastructure within a city that has to be built to support more citizens doing this how does a city adjust, and what's the role of the leadership in a city to help make that happen?
2: Excellent question. Because there's, there are largely 12 states where these cars go to now. Now, Tesla, the funny thing about Tesla, Tesla, Tesla wants to be in all 50 states. States are banning them. Do you know you still can't buy a Tesla in Texas or New Jersey? It's against the law. It almost was against the law in Indiana two years ago. People try to stop it because you know the dealerships don't like this model, and eh. yeah. so all this is going on. And I listen. I want manufacturers to make money. I want dealerships to make money, but you're right about these cars. They they're like the three West Coast uh, states: uh, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, Georgia, uh, and and others. So they're kind of on the coast. And I, I've been calling around trying to get these cars, but literally they don't know anything about it. When I go into a dealership in the city here and I ask about, are you going to get this car? I know 10 times more about that car than they do. And I'm just, you know, former mayor, right? They should know about these things, but they don't. And, and the infrastructure isn't necessarily there. Uh, Tesla, though, built infrastructure across the country. And so it, you pretty much drive across the country in a Tesla. Uh, depending on how you do it but for most people they'll be able to do that more charging stations are coming in uh, to the city but you're right there's more to the charge than the charging infrastructure there's who's going to service the car right The dealership will service the car if they sell the car but mm-hmm. other companies I'll just mention one Kia isn't going to sell these cars in these states and so ma- so their mechanics, don't aren't trained on them, and they don't mm-hmm. know what to do with them. Not that there's much to do with them anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. You're, but but you're, if you do, then they don't know right. what to do with them, and that's a, that's something that has to grow. You know, the chicken, and the egg, infrastructure right. of the cars, infrastructure of cars, right? So
1: your Jiffy Lube coupons are worthless that's once you get they, the Tesla. They are. They are. <laughs> um, jumping subject a little bit uh, because uh, as we tape this today, a an Indiana mayor has announced his presidential candidacy i don't want to talk about who's that some guy up north um but i'm curious about your perception having been a mayor here what skill set and skills as a mayor do you think are applicable to that office and what would the learning curve be
2: making a decision and sticking by it despite people coming after you afterwards big deal big deal Uh, i don't like I, i this is just my prejudice I don't like people who go from legislatures to executive officers, especially the president, because they're steeped in rhetoric. They're steeped in let's all get along. Who's going to vote over here and who's going to – you can say no over here because those will help you get elected. That's all nonsense. When you're the executive, you have to make the call. Mm -hmm. you got to make the call, and you know that half the people may not like your call. Maybe 75% don't like your call, but you think you're doing the right thing for the city in the long run. That's a big deal. Mm. So, um, and I know I know Pete. He's mm-hmm. a good dude. And it Pete's seems
1: it seems too like I mean, fitting you into this mix in terms of presidential politics. It seems like in at least in my lifetime, there's a the more the person perceived more as the outsider candidate has been more likely to win. If you go through across parties, Carter, Reagan, Clinton, Obama, Trump, each of those seems to have had the perception of being the outsider the less Washington candidate. Clearly, when you took <laughs> office here, you were perceived as the outsider candidate. How much, I mean, we talk a lot about- Other than
2: you, nobody, you and my wife, nobody here knew who I was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but we, we talk a lot about Democrat versus Republican and less talk, I think, about insider versus outsider in terms of, of perception, particularly among independents. Is that-
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. Nobody, everybody wants to clean out the swamp. Nobody wants to be associated with the swamp. When they're running for another office, mm-hmm. uh, I'm always I'm always stunned by the people who have been in D.C. for 12 years and they say I'm an outsider. I'm going to change it. Like, really? Okay, first of all, you're going to be one of 535, uh, so just understand that. But uh, so I I'm not overly uh, thrilled with the rhetoric of political campaigns, mm-hmm. uh, especially on the federal level. I, I just don't. Uh, a long time ago, not a long time ago, a couple of years ago. Lee Hamilton and, and uh, Richard Lugar, they do kind of the sideshow, mm-hmm. going around the state and do these. And so Senator Lugar, who I have enormous respect for, mm-hmm. said that it's a good. This President Obama is still in. He said it's a good thing that President Obama is doing all these executive orders because Congress isn't really doing anything, mm-hmm. uh, and so the government has to keep running. And then Lee Hamilton doubled down on that. Mm-hmm. He said. Not only they are not doing anything, they don't want to do anything, mm-hmm. because if they actually solve the issue, they won't have anything to run on. Mm-hmm. They will lose their campaign issue. Mm-hmm. That made wow. a lot of sense.
1: Because think a scary? of what they run,
2: look at the issues that mm-hmm. they run on, which really are not really the existential threats of America whatsoever. Uh, they're more social issues than anything else. And, but they want, they want to keep the campaign issue alive for the next election, as opposed mm-hmm. to actually solving Real things mm-hmm. like the debt, and you think that's
1: those are conscious decisions. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a downbeat way to. And I'll tell you what. I I'll tell you. I tell you what. I,
2: all that said, thanks. Thanks. I
0: mean, well, a joke you know? or something. Okay, I just impressed the entire world, and I, I,
2: I get that. But the uh, this is this is my take on it. Uh, I think this is gerrymandering. And both parties have done it in the states that they kind of control the main election used to be in November but with gerrymandering that's not the main election anymore the main election is now the primary people used to win the primaries and they'd be on mm-hmm. and I always call them the wing nuts you know the wing nuts mm-hmm. on the left and the right the wing nuts would win the primaries but then they'd have to come to the middle mm-hmm. to win the general election well now they don't mm-hmm. because when you win the primary, mm-hmm. you can stay out there and be the wing nut because the thing's gerrymandered you're going to win anyway mm-hmm. so they so they never come together mm-hmm. uh, you know in, just 30 years ago they they may fight publicly and they may say some things uh, you know it, with mm-hmm. it on TV or whatever, but then they go out and have a you know a steak mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. steak and wine later that night together right and and try to figure things out mm-hmm. they don't do that anymore they don't talk to each other anymore up there mm-hmm. that's
1: a real problem how did you get around the sort of party politics even on a local level I, you know, I, first of all I,
2: I guess I was the classic outsider I mean like I say only you and my wife probably knew where I was when I ran so uh, I, I think for me it was being the Marine Corps and when I got into office you have to understand me, me and my wife when we got in all of a sudden I had a thousand new friends Right. <laughs> <laughs> And they all wanted to say this and this and this and this. And the hel- some were helpful. Some were trying mm-hmm. to ha- be helpful. Others were trying to be ideological. And, mm-hmm. and we just, you know, I wasn't young at that point anymore. I was over, well over 50, and I kind of knew how to read all that. And I told my, t- when I was interviewing them for my staff, and I got to I didn't know anybody on my staff mm-hmm. when, it all, when all this started. I mean, so I had people that I did trust help me find the staff. And I told them if you're doing this for me or you're doing this for the party, we are not going to get along. I said, we're doing this for the long-term health of Indianapolis, and that's it. So if you don't see things that way, really don't take the job. Mm-hmm. And that's what I told every one of them. And that worked out pretty well for me, yeah. I think. And, um, and, so I, and so people knew I was just trying to do the right thing. However, at the mayor level, mm-hmm. if you're not doing the right thing for your city, if you're, if you're trying to be a Democrat or a Republican, you're not going to get reelected anyway, and, and nor should you. Because that the, the, most of the stuff in a city is not political.
0: So you had written an earlier book um, about small unit leadership, right? Right. Based on your military experience.
2: And, and a little bit of civilian experience. So, so
0: to, I'm curious, what, um, what applied when you became the mayor and what kind of leadership style or efforts did you have to maybe rethink in the different situation?
2: uh great uh great question the thing that mostly applied was focus I mean, i was in the marines no matter what you were doing we had a mission you have to do it and there are certain times you really you can't let distraction get in the way because there are people's lives in your hands and you that's just the way it is and and you have to stay focused on what you're doing so when i became the mayor i have people who are purposely trying to distract me <laughs> uh, and i and we, I was able to stay focused on really what we were trying to do. Uh, the other, the other piece uh, the, about m- my style, I kind of kept the same style. To be frank with you, I ha- you have to realize the political piece. The press is there, mm-hmm. and you got to get that, uh, and you just have to be able to manage all that. And, and I think we generally did that. I was beyond stupid on that the first year, <laughs> but but uh, I think I got that eventually. Uh, and uh, but. I, I wasn't a micromanager. Everybody thought I was going to come in and go, wah, 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 wah. I, I was just the opposite. I was never like that anyway. So I wanted people to come to me with their ideas. What are the good ideas? Let's vet them all. Let's figure it out together. And they didn't have to come from me. You'd be surprised how many office holders, their idea has to come from them, or they're not going to hear it. A shocking number. <laughs> now I was just the opposite. I, I wanted them to come from everybody. You might had a good idea. Let's figure this out. So you weren't checking you to
1: make sure that the you know, the beds were properly made on the cots in the office where your staff was well, sleeping wasn't doing over. anything
2: like that. No, no, no. And, uh, and I had, a, as you know, I had a great team. I had mm-hmm. terrific people. And you can look at where they are now. I mean, Sports Corp, Greater Chamber of Commerce, Cindy, Indiana, Mind Trust, State Lottery, uh, State Civil Rights Commission. I mean, on and on and on where my uh, people that used to work in my administration are now leading these organizations in the city and the state. Uh, and I, I was very blessed that I had such great people around me. And I listened to them. I listened to them. My, my first chief of staff, I'll never forget this. This is the first year I was the mayor. Again, I had, a, I had a little learning curve, but I learned. And we were talking one day, and it was, actually it was about a press, press thing. And uh, it was Paul Okison who's a brilliant guy, wonderful guy. And I said, well, you know, instead of this, we'll just do this. And he looks right at me dead in the eye and says, Mayor, that's 100% wrong.
1: <laughs> you got to have that.
2: I had a lot of that going on <laughs> in my office. <laughs> But 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 it worked. It worked. I mean, I didn't want people. Colin Powell used to say, "If if everybody agrees, somebody's redundant." And so, I don't I don't want I don't want everybody to agree with me. That's not good. We weren't antagonistic to each other at all, but we you know, we wanted to hear all of the ideas and kind of put them all together.
1: From a from a distance now, having uh, traveled extensively before, during, and after uh, your time as mayor, what's something that is. Is gettable in the next 10 years that Indianapolis doesn't have now? We're never going to have mountains. We're never going to have you know, a yeah. big beachfront. What is something that would that would upgrade the city um, that we don't have now or don't have enough of? Now?
2: I think we're heading that direction, but it's really mobility. Hmm. It's the the ability. It's shocking how much mobility transforms an area, and the ability of people to move around in different ways because the the talent level. That is there out now particularly millennial talent but this is also regarding seniors frankly they want kind of the same things but they don't want to walk or ride a bike or, or get on good transit or do blue indie, or whatever. they want all of it they want all of it they want to be in the uber lift they want to be able to, to get around that the way that they want to get around in and you have to have those multiple options to really make a city vibrant uh, it, it's hard to say that because people want to do this or this and this always comes to, oh, God, we love our cars here in Indianapolis. You well, know, every city says that. I've been around a lot. Every city says that when you're trying to change some transportation things. But the cultural trail has been a huge boon for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the property tax rate around half mile of the cultural trail has gone up over a billion dollars. It did the first two years. That's property tax receipts coming in, right?
1: And people yeah. have never been down Virginia Avenue before.
2: Virginia Avenue was now horrible before yeah. the cultural trail. Horrible. Uh, so all these different things, different ways of getting around, and different ways of looking at, at at mobility, I think are extremely important. I mean, when I start putting in bike lanes, people are like, oh, "What is he doing?" <laughs> and I and I understood that, but I also knew we were one of the very few major cities that had no bicycle culture whatsoever. And you can't attract talent into a city unless you have bicycle culture. That's just the way it is. Yeah. And uh, so you have to create one. And I think we did create one within a matter of four or five years. We're, we're healing out now. We're in a Top 15 cities in America for bicycles, uh, according to magazines.
1: We're going to uh, take your questions for the mayor and all of our guests in the second half, so write those down. At intermission, we're going to uh, collect those, and we're going to bring uh, Greg Ballard back in a moment, but let's give a round of applause for his attendance. And we've talked a fair amount about science to a certain degree, and I want to introduce our musical guest, Cam Melton, um, who is a singer, songwriter, biomedical engineer? Mm-hmm. We'll talk about what that means <laughs> a little later. Uh, please give a listen to Cam. Either
3: way. <laughs> like a
5: burning this. Eyes with looks that maim, and I would never be the same. You took me to a foreign land. I became your biggest fan, but these days I can't wait until you go on. I never just like drugs. You ain't as much fun as you used to be. No, no, no. No, 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 honey We're just like drugs, just like drugs, just like drugs You ain't as much fun as you used to be No, 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 honey, no my neck and soul, my soul And happily I played that role But now it's time to mend this a gaping roll When I met you, you were free You helped me find a part of me I didn't even know that I might need Now, just like drugs You ain't as much fun as you used. No, no, no No, 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 no Honey, just like gross Just like gross Just like gross You ain't as much fun as you used to be No, 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 no
1: Pam Melton, we'll be back in just a few minutes after a brief intermission. Very good.
0: You like that. Welcome back to the second half of Lou Harry Gets Real. Lou Harry Gets Real is sponsored by the Oxford Room, a unique and private event space located above the Aristocrat Pub. The Oxford Room is a beautiful, comfortable space perfect for many types of gatherings. The den-like setting showcases rich wood paneling, leaded and stained glass windows and fixtures, as well as interesting artwork, statues and collectibles expertly curated by Mr. Rick Rising Moore, who's been the owner since 1969. The room seats about 60 people, is equipped with audio equipment, a full bar, private bathroom, separate entrance, and an elevator with access from the parking lot. They can customize a menu to make sure that your next event is a smashing success. So if you are interested in having your next event at the Oxford Room, just go to Oxford Room at aristocratpub.com.
1: Thank you, Beth. Uh, we have Cam Melton, who offered some music in the, um, at the end of the first act and is going to offer a little more coming up soon. But had some questions, I have to um, honestly say, and we've done the research on this, you are the first musical guest we've had on the podcast who has studied microbial, micro, wait, I screwed that up. Let's try that again. You are the first guest we've had who has studied microbiological genetic. No, I said that <laughs> wrong again. Let's, what, at, you're a Rose-Hulman graduate in biomedical engineering who studied stuff I can't even pronounce at IUPUI. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, this uh, science background.
4: Certainly. Uh, so it's uh,
1: microbial genetics. Microbial genetics, microbial uh, genetics, microbial genetics.
0: Now, now of course, I know what that is, oh, but for course. the benefit of our audience, right, Could just, you just to tell help us them. a little bit.
1: Let's help them out a little bit.
4: Certainly. So uh, basically, what I did was I, I looked at what genes within bacteria help them cause disease. And in particular, we looked at um, what's called biofilm, which is a 3D community of bacteria and they sort of secrete this thick, waxy substance that helps them adhere to surfaces, it protects them from immune cells, and uh, it it makes them much more resistant to antibiotics. So once they develop this biofilm, they're very difficult to eradicate. So we looked at what genes uh, control this process, and uh, we looked at what genes make these bacteria more virulent.
1: Now, you're also a musician. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Do these two areas cross in your mind, or is one a vacation from the other?
4: Absolutely. the The music is is kind of a vacation from it. It's it's a time when I can turn off the very analytical, logical side of my brain, and I can just be very present and and creative and organic. Uh, but I, I do think that they inform one another. Where I, I have a very analytical and logical process by which I go through, I practice and uh, learn new things and uh, my my writing process is, is fairly methodical and analytical mm. but which came first uh, definitely the the math and science that, that came from early childhood um, I started taking math classes at the university when I was in middle school mm. um, so that was sort of my the career trajectory that was plotted out for me and ordained for me but
1: uh, so is that, that, I mean, middle school going to college to study science is that just you know, a, a geek neon sign on your head? Or how, is that, <laughs> how did that fit in socially? Uh,
4: it, it was odd because uh, it, it was after school. Um, so my parents would drive me down to the university. So during school, I, I wouldn't be in the math class. I, I would go to the library with another student that I mm-hmm. took this class with. And uh, so there, there was a little bit of a, a segregation of, of the nerds. Uh, right. But uh, <laughs> at, at the same time... Um, you know, I've sort of worn it as a badge of honor. I I, I think nerd is a compliment. So. There you go. Was there a
1: tipping point um, in your decision to pursue music full time?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's really just been recent. Um, I, I, I've i had a lot of health issues over the years. I have Crohn's disease, and, and you know, it's had me in and out of the hospital. And it f- sort of forced me to reevaluate how I want to spend the time that I have on, on this planet. And... Uh, you know, music is something that brings me a lot of joy, and if I can turn that into a career, I would love to. Um, I can always were fall you, back on the science and stuff. Were you
1: playing the guitar in the hospital? Or, I mean, is it that Well, not, in, not in the <laughs> hospital,
4: but uh, absolutely it's something that, that helped preserve my sanity mm-hmm. in the, the darker times. It was a, a way to process those emotions and uh, kind of turn off some of the anxieties that surround it and just be present and in the moment playing the music.
0: I am curious about the conversation with your parents. Um, When you said, hey, all that sciencey math stuff I've invested my whole life in, I think I'm done with that. I'm going to go play the guitar in some places. How'd that go?
4: (laughs) Actually, my mom is very supportive. Uh, I I think she understood that, uh, you know, she understands that life is very fragile. Nothing's promised to us. So pursue what it is that you love. And, and so she was. Uh, she's she has my back a hundred percent. And uh, you know, I think, I think she worries about how I'm gonna feed myself. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but at, at the same time, I, I'll find a way through it.
1: You have an EP out. How? What's the decision making process like on not just what songs you're going to put on it, but what order? How much thinking goes into that, and how much is just what feels right?
4: Certainly. Uh, you know, it is tough to distill and understand, distill down which, which songs I want to pick. Um, and, and it's tough to know. I, I have my own personal attachments to songs, but that doesn't mean that those are the songs that other people are going to relate to and attach to. Uh, so, you know, really consulting the, my support network of friends and colleagues and, and such, uh, getting other people's input is really important. Mm-hmm.
0: How I was listening. I'm sorry. I was listening me. to some of your songs this morning, and they feel—they all have a very intimate and personal feel. Do you always write from your own perspective or experience, or are you like picking moments out of the world and riffing on them to see what you can create?
4: Uh, they're definitely heavily influenced by my own personal experiences, and, and honestly, it's a way for me to to process those experiences and and, and find meaning or. Uh, it, it, to to figure out how, how I feel about it, I, you know, I'm writing about it and figuring that out as I'm going through the process uh, but definitely I think honesty is, is very important to me and how, how I go about it, I want it to reflect who I am and, and what I'm about
1: gonna tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear next
4: certainly, uh, the next song I'm going to play uh, it's called Nirvana Pie uh, this is a song I wrote uh, the day I found out um, my girlfriend at the time was moving to California. She had just gotten her dream job with a medical device company, and you know, on one hand, I was incredibly happy for her because this was something she'd always wanted. But you know, on the other hand, I was devastated because I was here and I, I was working in the lab at the time and working on a master's, and you know, I couldn't follow her. Uh, so it was uh, it was very bittersweet. Uh, sometimes more bitter than sweet, other times. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, this is uh, the song I tried to write from her perspective. This this idea that you know, it's the same thing that I'm going through with this musical journey, where you know you have one chance to to do this life the way you want to do it. So when opportunities arise, you got to take it. And yeah, you know, trying to be happy for her at the mm-hmm. same time, I'm crushed inside, mm-hmm. and that's that's sort of the genesis of of, of this song.
1: Let's give a listen. All right, Cam Melton.
5: Well, it seems to me that the place to be is right where. You can't see the life that you have always wanted to lead Sometimes we, including me, just need to be where we feel free So honey, please don't stand in my way Cause I am leaving in the morning And I ain't looking back, no I'm not Off to find me a slice of that sweet Nirvana pie Cause everywhere I've looked at seem to be out Forking paths and mystery doors with jars of truth And battle scars I carry with a heavy load I don't know whether this is right but I just can't keep losing sight of things in life I know that I need So I am leaping in the morning And I ain't looking back, no I'm not want to find me a slice of that sweetener from cuz every. Where I've looked at seem to be out. Yeah, I am leaving in the oh, 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 morning, and I ain't looking back. No, I'm not. Off to find me a slice of that sweet nirvana. Rival looked has seemed to be yeah. and, uh, and <laughs> so gonna
1: bring back up now. and answer some of your questions <laughs> one to get things started for cam uh, as a Chemical engineer, how does that in any way relate to some of the issues that uh, Mayor Ballard was talking about? <laughs>
4: actually, uh, it, it does. Um, actually more so the, um, as a microbiologist. So I worked with a bacteria uh, called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Wait, slowly. <laughs> Pseudomonas aeruginosa. If and, anyone
1: uh, can spell that, they're going to win free tickets to the next show. <laughs> I'm sorry.
4: But actually, it's a bacteria that's used in uh, bioremediation of certain oil spills. Uh, so a lot, along the lines of, of, of oil destroying the environment, in, in these cases of emergencies, they can use this bacteria to break it down into components that are uh, less toxic to the uh, environment.
1: There we go.
4: Um,
1: uh, before you go on, go, I'm, I'm sorry.
2: He reminds me of one of my all-time favorite movie lines.
1: Go ahead. Uh,
2: No one is truly free until nerd persecution
1: ends. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, I want to springboard on that a little bit. A, A lot of... During your tenure as mayor, Indianapolis grew to be what could be argued, and if they marketed it correctly, the nerd capital of the world because we have the largest... Board and uh, tabletop gaming convention, I believe Star Wars Celebration was here during your time. Yeah, yeah, sure um, was. Was that and is it was there a conscious move or a resistance to uh, us embracing that title? The nerd culture?
2: Yeah. The, I don't. Uh, I wouldn't quite put it like that. I would. <laughs> I would tell you that we embraced uh, the sciences and, and all that that meant, mm. and uh, and those individuals and those organizations that were. Important. I, I'm always reminded, like at a football game between—I shouldn't say those colleges. Sure, but, you should. So, <laughs> but when anybody else is uh, playing a Stanford or Northwestern or MIT or something, mm. you know, the the chant that always comes over is, "One day you're going to work for us." Right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the implication is you're beating us now, but one day you're going to work for us. Right? <laughs> um, uh, and it, uh, if somebody asked, what would the impact of electric conversion be on gas tax and infrastructure? You know,
2: that's a great question. I, I, I get that a lot. How are we going to pay for the infrastructure? That's just the, we have to fix infrastructure, not, no question. But it, it's you can pay for it another way, either through income tax, property tax. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the fact that you get gas tax. It's kind of funny. Indiana is actually one of the states that actually taxes you for having one of these cars. Most, <laughs> most states actually give you some sort of credit or some sort of bonus for having one of these cars. In Indiana, you actually have to pay a little bit more.
1: What, uh, how did that happen and why? Oh,
2: God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it was under the,
2: the logic of, well, they have to pay for infrastructure repair, too, which is, oh. I, I'm okay with that, right. but it's, it's actually a little bit more than the average person pays for that. But that's, you
1: know. Wait, just so just I a, understand. So you're saying that because they're not paying a gas tax – well, they have to pay something to work on sure. the roads, and here's what, okay. And
2: it just happens to be more than the average person pays for the road through gas tax. But that's, oh, okay. you know, that's neither here nor there. I mean, Georgia used to give a $5,000 credit. That's mm-hmm. why Georgia became the Nissan Leaf capital of the country, mm-hmm. because uh, you not only got $7,500 from the feds, you got 5000 from Georgia itself. So they were buying electric cars all over the place. Uh, Georgia rescinded that. They may put it back in, but I'm not sure. But uh, but we actually go the opposite way here, and you just got of have to live with it and no one, when, I, when I talk about EV infrastructure, electric vehicles, no one knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, You do now, right. but, uh, but I, it's a matter of getting the word out because the, I don't, I'm not sure the legislature knows the difference between a plug-in hybrid and a pure EV or anything like that. So,
1: so there's a, an educational process that's I, part of it. I think so. Um, another question? Handwriting. We're going to challenge you on this a little bit. I may mess up some of the, uh, the views expressed do not include the reasons for our military involvement in these areas, like fighting oppression, allowing for democracy, uh, something, something, uh, something preservation. Are these false reasons, or are those reasons... Well,
2: I, I don't think we're promoting democracy in the Middle East. Right. Am I wrong about that? <laughs>
3: right.
1: We're not doing that at all. Um, I mean, that's used sometimes as a... A we're protecting Israel well, argument, but
2: yeah yes I mean but it's not I, I'm not sure anybody knows about the, the uh, national security uh, mm-hmm. sort of, uh, national security strategy mm-hmm. that each president puts out and, and how they do that theoretically rolls down to the military and how they structure their forces for, for instance uh, Jimmy Carter's national security stat- strategy and he believed this to his core was that uh, we need to promote human rights Mm-hmm. So the military and other agencies should structure how they do that based on that. Uh, George Bush 43 was promoting democracy throughout the world. Mm-hmm. So you have to structure forces according to that. So I'm not sure we have any of that going on uh, right now mm-hmm. or not. But in the Middle East, the, we have not been promoting democracy. Mm-hmm. We do fight terrorists in the Middle East, and we do it saying it's better over there than over here. There's some truth to that. But the only reason we're really fighting terrorists in the Middle East is to stabilize that area, so that oil gets out of there. Mm-hmm. That's really why we're doing it.
1: What do you think, let's say 10, 20 years ago, we went to another forum. We didn't need to go in and protect the oil. What would that part of the world look like now?
2: Uh, chaos, because pirates would control all of this and, and, black, and oil would largely be black market. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's a bad thing that we're doing this. I'm happy that we're doing it and not somebody else. What I'm saying is, Let's get to the point where it's not necessary. Let's get to the point where oil is not critical to the economies of the world because right now it is. That's where we need to get to. So then, if we if it's not critical to the economies of the world based on transportation, then there's really no reason to protect it, right? Kind of like salt used to be critical strategic commodity for the world. Lots of things changed, including refrigeration. All of a sudden, salt is not a critical critical strategic commodity anymore for anybody, uh, but we still have a salt industry, right? right. right. So, I mean, that's that's kind of how right. this could play I mean, out.
1: I've been to some restaurants where it seems like salt is a critical is it, is commodity. It, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> one, of the, um, one of the things that I, I recall from your, from your time as mayor and as somebody who at the time was, was covering the arts and still do in town, I think I saw you at more arts events not just there to make a presentation or there to make an appearance, but actually they're enjoying the arts. Um, tell us where that interest came from and how that's yeah, continued. That's, that's a that's a great question.
2: First of all, we maybe you have more opportunity to do that sort of thing, and you you know quite a bit more people, so it's it's. Uh, it's always fun to do it. Uh, I always had a reputation when I go to an event. I don't stay 15 minutes, get the picture, and mm-hmm. say, hey, I've been here, and get out of there. I never, never had that reputation. I had the reputation for actually staying and <laughs> talking to people mm-hmm. and sometimes staying late uh, because I, I enjoyed it. For instance, after I got done with Gregory Hancock, I would
1: uh, – It's Gregory I, Hancock Dance, I, dance Theater, a local ha- dance company.
2: I would stay and say hi to the dancers and congratulate them that mm-hmm. night. I mean, right. So I stayed you know, half hour to an hour afterwards talking to them. So I, that's just the way I was. Uh, you know, Shannon sang for me all the time at, at different events. And my wife would be sitting right next to me and she'd come up and did all my hair and, and everything else. She's not worried about me. Yeah, she's not. So, so and, and it was always so fun, you know, with, with Shannon singing at different events that I was That's at. That's Shannon Forcell, Executive right. Director
1: of the Cabaret, who's in the audience. She's,
2: uh, and she's a great singer, uh, a former Miss Indiana, am I right?
1: First runner-up. Okay. All right. In case you okay. didn't hear that, that was first runner-up. First runner-up. Runner Just to make sure everyone heard that, that was first runner-up. Yeah. You may not have heard that from the, you know, <laughs> listeners at the podcast. That was first runner-up.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, Should have gone with the uh, baton uh, twirling, she, maybe. She, she, yeah. she got. <laughs>
2: oh, I was willing to give her credit. I'm like, yeah, but. Uh, I mean, it's just fun to go to the events because the people are really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get entertained. And, uh, you know, I got invited to quite a few, and, and we, we liked doing it. I mm-hmm. particularly like dance, as, as uh, lots of people know. So mm-hmm. I went to a lot of, lot of uh, Gregory Hancock's uh, troupe and also a dance kaleidoscope and whatever else I could get to mm-hmm. in, in that regard. And I, actually, I still get asked quite a bit to go to yeah. dance things, so I, and I, I go to them. So how important do you enjoyed
1: think, it. How important do you think the sort of homegrown arts are to the character of a city? Oh, I think <laughs> I think it's critical. I mean, uh, I, I was just when I was sitting over
2: there and you were interviewing Cam. I was thinking, God, how neat is this? <laughs> right here in Indianapolis on a Sunday night. How neat is this, really? Um, and I, I think I think so. I think all of that is extremely important. It adds, it always adds to what I would call the the the, um, the culture of not just that's the culture of the city. What's the word I want? But. Uh, the ambiance of the city, if you will, that attracts talent. I always think of terms, every decision I made as the mayor was about attracting talent into the city. You have to create the kind of city that people want to live in. This is the sort of thing that attracts people to a city. And all, all, all local talent attracts people to a city. Uh, and, and everybody has their little niche, and we want all these little niches, and we want to support all these little niches because I think it's critical to attract talent and and therefore companies and keep the employment rate and, and the tax base up and everything else. So I think the
1: arts does all of that. From the ISO <laughs> perspective, how is there a you know sort of how much of your audience is are the sort of core people, and how much is trying to reach new audiences or pulling people who are visiting? Is that any kind of relevant piece of the business
0: oh absolutely it's a huge piece of the business because we do have the core audience um, you know we are an organization like any orchestra any symphony orchestra is is uh, based on some deeply rooted traditions some you know Western European musical traditions but the thing is we don't have to be limited as an orchestra by those traditions because there is an incredible breadth of music that and orchestra like this can play so I'm really pleased to hear you talk about the relationship between cultural vibrancy and economic vibrancy in a city because like an organization like ours we employ employ more full time artists from across the world to live and work in Indiana than any other organization and so by doing that we change the city because They teach at our universities, they give lessons, they make music when they're outside the orchestra. So the presence of artists in a city makes it a robust, special, and unique place to live. And the more we can um, do with that workforce that we have, those 75 musicians that we employ in different areas, different genres for different ages, the more we engage people to live here Mm -hmm. and want to stay here because there is something for them.
1: A question came in. Looking back, do you have any thoughts about the curbside recycling program you tried to put in place? <laughs> I'm not sure I should comment on that. <laughs> For those listening at home, give us a, uh, a brief history of what happened there. We thought that we had a, a, a,
2: a technology that would allow everything to be recycled uh, based on one, one flow. Uh, others did not like that model and didn't, and they made that pretty well known to us. Uh, so, uh, getting curbside re- getting voluntary curbside, curbside re- recycling, uh, I like to say this in a certain way: we tripled the voluntary curbside recycling, which means we went from like I think three percent to nine percent. Right? So, triple sounds good, but the, the base was really low, and it still is. Uh, because people just kind of aren't there. But so we, the, the technology that was presented to us, that we, we think we vetted it pretty well, uh, would have done it completely differently. And, and lots of people in that arena didn't really like it. So they kind of fought against us and brought up lawsuits and everything else. And frankly, they waited me out as I was done being the mayor.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, this going from the very local to the global. It seems like, said this, reader, this uh, questioner, uh, the Iran nuclear deal was supported by U.S., European, and even Israeli diplomatic and military establishments as a way to support Iranian uh, modern-edge Iran toward the community of nations. Was it, is this a good idea or a bad idea?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's a question for you, Cam. <laughs> uh, no. it's, um... do, you, do you want to comment on the Iran nuclear deal? I don't. I didn't read the deal.
2: Okay, I, I'll be honest about that. I didn't read the deal. And but what, from what I understand, is that the Iranians are largely uh, in compliance. Um, but that doesn't mean, at least to me, it doesn't mean that they're our buddies. Uh, they're still considered a state sponsor of terrorism. But my understanding is they're largely in compliance. That's what I'm. That's what I understand. And there are people who always, no matter what they do or whoever does. You know, when you have a nation like that or like Russia, you ne- you never really should fully trust them anyway. But you know, so I, I'm hoping that they are largely in compliance, because we really don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. I don't care what you think. I don't. I think that's a horrible idea to allow nu- Iran to have a nuclear weapon. But uh, based on based on history, so. But but if, if the Europeans think that they're largely in compliance, I think I think that's okay.
1: Um, Another question it would seem that it is important to address how the electricity to run the cars in Indianapolis would be produced or wherever um, how is that electricity produced it's most of the
2: electricity in Indianapolis is natural gas I hope hope you know that uh, uh, I, again for purposes of my argument I, I don't really care mm-hmm. uh, that said uh, lots of other people do care and I do too frankly just not for purposes of the book but uh, in 10 15. Maybe 20. I don't think it'll be 20 years. I, we're going to be driving electric cars that are powered by solar and wind and battery storage. That's just the way it's going to be. I, I, th- I think that's the way it's going to be.
1: But what if there's no, not a windy day? That's where battery <laughs> storage comes into play. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs>
2: Since the question had been asked nationally, I had to ask it here. You know, battery storage is, is really key, and I give Elon Musk a lot of credit for moving this along. I, I, I don't know what's happening lately. He's getting a lot of bad press here lately, but the fact is he has moved this so far forward uh, on so many different levels. Battery storage is, is critical, and it's getting a lot better. The, we are in the hands of chemists as we speak, and the chemistry of the batteries is going to change over the next five to 10 years. I don't think there's much question about that. I think it will get a lot denser. It will get uh, a lot more powerful, and it'll get a lot cheaper. And I, the two problematic minerals won't be so problematic. I don't, th- I don't think lithium is so problematic. Cobalt, maybe, a little bit. But Elon Musk uses one quarter of the cobalt in his batteries that other people use in their batteries. So there's something going on there uh, that I think we can, we can get to a certain point. But solar is dropping like a rock. It is going to be cheaper, might be cheaper right now. If you were to start with a blank piece of paper, solar would be the way to go, not coal. Or natural gas uh, and i think utilities uh, i like the fact that two of the utilities here in the state I, i'm shocked but i'm happy that they're looking at moving toward renewables i'm really happy about that on a big scale uh so that that is uh that's good that's good for the state uh people are fighting it believe it or not and kind of typical i guess um, but uh solar i'm just telling you it's going to be solar wind and within 15 years definitely probably within 10. You probably don't, 37% of the wind, 37% of the electricity in Iowa is wind. Mm. Most people don't know that sort of thing. Very conservative state. This can actually happen. It actually can happen, but uh, battery storage is key key to all of this. And once it gets to a certain point, what I would consider in layman's terms, 72 hours on utility-scale storage, game's over. Mm. Coal and natural gas will be gone at that point in time.
1: Speaking of coal, how much of... The resistance in Washington has to do with politicians trying to protect what they see as their constituency and telling them we're going to bring back coal or this is another way to get oil locally or, you know, those sort of uh, things that may not be uh, practical but help shore up their votes. I
2: think people are resisting the change uh, based on votes. I don't think there's really much question about that. Uh, I, I also think that again go to appendix A in the book right mm-hmm. you'll see the the campaign contributions and I'm not and I'm not suggesting at all I would never say this actually I don't think any individual congressman or senator or whoever changes their vote because of this campaign contribution but they do get listened to I mean those folks do get listened to and and if you're hearing one side then you kind of think that's the one side okay. um, and you have to be careful of that so the other side has to get in there because the other side new emerging technologies are not well funded and therefore they do not have a great lobbying effort Uh, one reason that oil continues to be so strong they have mastered the art of federal lobbying no question about that Uh, the biggest energy subsidy in the world by far is that 81 billion dollars that i told you about Mm. but they also get subsidies on, on federal lands uh, to lease and things like that. They get all that stuff. Uh, they got one, I can't believe, a manufacturer's tax in 2004 that I'm sure none of you know about, but it wasn't designed for things like oil. It was designed to counteract China and their increased manufacturing. So I think a lot of that, I think they, who, who do legislators listen to, I think matters, but also, I, I'm just going to be honest with you, people look at votes. They want to stay in office. And they're going to look at votes and who's, who's protecting my industry and who's not protecting my industry. I think, that's a, I think that's going to be a part of it. And they just have to realize where all this is going because if you don't get ahead of it, it's going to run you over sooner or later. And I'm wor- always worried about the level of talent in the area, in the state, in the city and the state. And if you're behind on energy and how you look at energy, talent's going, talent and the companies are going someplace else. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, this would probably be a better question for your wife, Winnie, but have you considered or been tempted to run for another public office? Will there be another campaign in your future?
2: I get asked that uh, quite a bit. I was asked for senator and you know, governor and things like that in the past. I, I, uh, I don't anticipate anything like that in the near future. If uh, you know, Once the current governor, and I, I, I like Governor Holcomb, once he's done – Uh, If people still want me to run, I'll run. But I'm not one of those guys who's pining to be in office Mm -hmm. like other people are. I'm just not pining. If people want me to do it and they think I'm practical and I'd be good for the state and they wanted me to do it, I would look at
1: it. Otherwise, I'm fine. But we can quote you out of context and say, Mayor Ballard said, I'll run.
0: (laughs) I just want to express how grateful the people of Indiana are that you did not go the post-Mayoral Jerry Springer route in your career.
2: I was uh, tempted. (laughs) I I would have liked to have a radio show, but there were other things I was actually trying to do uh, that would have precluded me from spending enough time to do that. Uh, Also, in radio, you'd have to adapt an extreme opinion. I th- yes, and I, I would I would have fought that. To mm-hmm. be honest with you, I would I would hope that uh, I wouldn't have done that. But the other thing you fight in radio is extreme poverty, mm-hmm. right? So, cause it, because because it, it it doesn't pay well uh, until you get a big audience, right? Yeah. But um, the extreme stuff is is bothers me, and I was ho- if I was going to do it, I was hoping to have some sort of rational discussion every day mm-hmm. on that. If I could if mm-hmm. I could have done that instead of going to the extremes. Right.
1: Well, we're going to wrap things up with another song uh, from Cam, if you have one to offer to us. Any setup needed, or you want to jump right in? Uh,
5: I'll
1: just jump
4: right in.
5: All right. I'm going down to the river, and I'm going to wash you off of me. Cause I can't stand this feeling Of the shame Upon my skin I'm going down To the river And I'm going to Wash you Over me Cause I just want to Feel free Her tides pull me under Her currents rip asunder The earth that I carry here today yeah. Stripped of its meaning I let go of these feelings And watch them float away like a arrow Going down to the river, and I'm going to wash, wash you off of me. Yeah. Cause I can't stand this feeling of the ocean on my skin. I'm going down to the river. I'm gonna wash, wash you up of me, yeah. Cause I just wanna feel clean again. Yes, I do. I just wanna feel clean again.
1: Cam Melton. That wraps up another episode of Lou Harry Gets Real. Thanks for coming out. Thank you to the staff of The Aristocrat. Thanks to Miles Hall on sound. Producer Patrick Chastain. Thanks to Greg Ballard. Cam Mountain. Beth Outland. Thanks to Jimmy Stewart, Frank Capra, and everyone involved in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, one of my favorite movies. Thanks to IU Press, publisher of Less Oil or More Caskets. Thanks to Deb D'Alessandro and John Kincaid and the civilized debaters of Temple University. Thanks to the guy who sold me my 1976 Silver Hornet. And thanks to whoever bought it from me eventually. <laughs> uh, give a listen uh, to the podcast. Catch past episodes on iTunes and elsewhere. Uh, thanks for helping spread the word. Check out uh, Twitter at Lou Harry and LouHarry.com. This episode is dedicated to my childhood friend, Bill Walters, who we lost on Friday. Man, you meant something. See you next month. Until then, keep an open mind and an open heart. Thanks for coming out. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank well, you. We, always, we want to make sure we get a group picture yeah. before we go.